Lord, as we thought last week and we're reminded again with the children this morning, you come as one with words of authority. You know what is best for us and indeed you know where we find joy. You know what we were made for. You know who we are. And so we pray as as we look at these verses, as we are focusing in again on the Lord Jesus Christ, might we see more of his beauty this morning, more of him being the answer to our questions. And so do it work among us, we pray. In his name. Amen. Often on your travels you come across misunderstandings or objections that people might have to the Christian faith of what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe straw men that are built Maybe ideas, half-truths, but not the whole story. It strikes me what we have in our passage this morning, 2 verse 1 through to 3 verse 6. Help us with four answers to four questions that are often raised, misunderstandings about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe, maybe they're questions that you have, secretly or more overtly. Maybe they're questions that your friends might have. Um, here are the four questions. Misunderstandings of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, The Christian faith is about words and ideas, but with no real evidence. Just a kind of a theory, ideas, hypotheses. Um, Perhaps it's just for respectable people, secondly. Perhaps you think Christian faith is about sucking the joy out of life. Or fourthly, maybe it's just to do with keeping the rules. I think as we encounter Jesus this morning in these chapter 2 and a bit of chapter 3, you see at least part way towards answers for these things. We'll come back to them in a moment. But just remember for now where we've come so far in Mark's Gospel. In week 1 we saw um, King Jesus coming and we saw that his Gospel, his news was fundamentally good. Foundationally, Jesus is good news. He's come, he's the king, and yet as we saw with grace, he's come with power and authority. And yet this power and authority is perhaps coupled with an unexpected compassion and a kindness. We saw that last week. Do you remember, he, this sort of 24-hour snapshot, and mostly around the Sabbath, he deals with all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. Maybe you looked at it in home groups um, This man possessed with an impure spirit, verse 21 onwards. This um, mother-in-law dangerously ill in bed, verse 29 onwards. The crowds gathering as the sun goes down, so the Sabbath ends. The leper who approaches him, as Charlie began our service. And yet we saw that it was interesting, Jesus won't do things our way. He, He comes from the left field, he's not... And ministering in the kind of way we would expect and so he disappears by himself to go pray when they're all looking for him he, he heads off to preach in small villages he says that's why he's come what we'll see this morning though and what I think unites these four little stories perhaps five little stories the thing that unites them is that as Jesus' ministry builds, builds opposition towards him builds as well Remember, if you were here in week one, we thought it might happen because when Mark kicks off his gospel from Malachi in 1 verse 2, do you remember the, the context was of God coming to judge and to deal with the hypocrisy of Israel? 
with people who were talking the talk but not walking the walk and so the religious leaders begin just to get a bit shifty at this point they, they don't like him opposition is building antagonism, hatred to the climax there in 3 verse 6 then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus we'll think in a bit why that is extraordinary let's have a look there four little encounters and what they teach us of Jesus but also how they try and answer some of these objections that people have. The first one then is 2-1-12, to sorry, typo. Um, it's about words and ideas, but with no real evidence. Okay, words and ideas with no real evidence. And if you look down, it seems pretty clear that this guy in the story had a big problem. And the problem was, he couldn't walk, he was paralysed. Imagine seeing your friends all around you, dancing, walking on the beach, sand between your toes, playing football, going upstairs, and yet if this guy wanted to get anywhere, he had to rely completely upon other people. It would have been obvious what he needed, wouldn't it? What he needed most in all the world. Jesus has already met significant needs last week with the leper, for example. And yet, unlike the leper, this guy is unable to make his way to Jesus. But, but he had some good mates. They were going to help him out. And the first part of the plan goes pretty well. They've heard Jesus is back in town again. He's come back home. They, they carry their friend to the house where Jesus is. So there's some kind of makeshift stretcher, it seems. And the problem, though, the problem is the popularity of Jesus. Wherever he goes, crowds are gathering. We saw that beginning last week. And so it means they need to adapt their plan. They arrive at the house, but they can't get close enough to get their friend on the mat to Jesus. And so they're ingenious. And, verse 5, they have faith. It's like that children's book, we're going on a bear hunt. But it's not a bear, it's Jesus. And we can't get round them. And we can't go under them. We'll have to go over them. And they do. Onto the roof. I wonder who felt the plaster from the ceiling fall first. Just a bit of scratching, a bit of banging, and suddenly dust starts coming down. Imagine the cries of disbelief in the room. The little little hole becomes a bigger hole, and then you see some faces peeping over the top. And then this man on a bed is gently lowered down into the midst of them. Cries of anger from around the room. The, The people who were trying to get to the front of the Jesus crew are gutted. They didn't think of that. But the guy who owns the house, what have you done to my ceiling? And there they are. Roof partially destroyed. Mission accomplished. One miracle short of a -a five-a-side team. Now all Jesus had to do was to heal him. And so verse 5, look at it with me, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, get up and walk. Hang on, no, he didn't. He said, said, son, your your sins are forgiven? What sort of a response is that, Jesus? It's offensive. Do you care nothing for this man's problems? Can you not see the problem? You can just imagine his friends on the roof looking down through the hole. What did he say? Sins? No, 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 Jesus, it's his legs. You've got it wrong, he can't walk. 
But Jesus hadn't got it wrong. He cares more deeply for this man than anyone standing in the room or on the roof. His friends think his greatest need is for his legs to work. But Jesus, like the expert doctor, knows there is a far bigger problem than that, a far more urgent need. That need is for sins forgiven. Not being able to walk is clearly a serious problem. But do you see the point that we're left with from Mark? Sin is more life-threatening than sickness, this says. And we need to press pause at that point because you see something amazing. Jesus has not just got the power to deal with sickness and uncleanness and the results of us walking out on God. Now he has the power to deal with sin, the root cause of our broken world, of, of humanity walking out on God. Jesus can deal with that. And yet, to put it bluntly, recognising sin to be the world's big problem is one thing. I guess any religious guru can do that. But to claim to be actually able to deal with sin, to forgive, well then you've, you've gone too far, haven't you? You've stepped into God's domain at that point. And the teachers of the law are absolutely right. Forgiving sin is God's domain. That is what he does. This is important. If, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there is, this is something to wrestle with at this point. Um, the teachers of the law were spot on. I'm going to get Charlie to stand up if you can. And I'm going to get Pat to stand up as well. We don't normally do this if you're visiting. But, if I were to come and hit Charlie in the face at this point, I would have wronged him, obviously. But if Pat were then to stand up and say, it's okay, Dan, I forgive you for punching Charlie, that would be ridiculous and ineffective, wouldn't it? Because he doesn't have the right to forgive me. I need to be forgiven by Charlie because Charlie is the one I've punched. Charlie is the one that I've wronged. If my relationship with Charlie is to be restored, he needs to forgive me, not Pat. Thanks, Dan. And you see, in the Bible, sin is about us and God, ultimately. Sin is about our bad attitude to God. It's about us punching God in the face. So who has the right to forgive sins? God. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he is making a huge claim, an almighty claim. He is claiming to be God on earth. But again, to be blunt... He might be mad. Is there anything to his claim? Anyone can claim stuff. But our question needs to be, was Jesus legit at this point? And Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their minds. And so he asks the people a question. Verse 9, have a look. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Which is easier. I, I take it saying, your sins are forgiven is easier. Because no one can see if you've done it. And so how does Jesus prove he can forgive sins? How does he prove he's the real deal? Well, in order to prove he could do the unseen action of forgiving, he does the seen action of healing. And he does. And a man can now walk. And that is evidence of a man who has sins forgiven. 
Now that story in itself has all kinds of implications that we will press into in home groups. But for now, just notice a couple of things with me. Notice that the teachers of the Lord don't doubt that Jesus healed this guy. The evidence is in front of them. That is not their problem. They don't doubt that he's done it. Later on we'll see they doubt how he's doing it. But notice as well, just secondly, for people who might say that the Christian faith is all about words and ideas but with no real evidence, just a philosophy, it's a way of seeing the world, it's a poem to get you through the scary moments. No, no, here is Jesus dealing with, with the reality of our fundamental needs, our greatest needs, of sins forgiven and our everyday needs as well. And so opposition begins to bubble. The second objection, verse 13 to 17, is that the Christian faith is only really for respectable people. Maybe you feel that this morning. Maybe, maybe you don't think you should even be here. If we knew you and what you're really like, then maybe you think we wouldn't want you here. But in these next five verses, Jesus entirely turns that on its head. Because we see the kind of people he came for. And again, the Pharisees, they were a kind of um, respectable, impressive religious group. They were not happy with Jesus. Pick it up at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. He began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While he was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with them and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's the beef with tax collectors? Um... I guess they have a bad name in our culture already. They are the guys who take your hard-earned money, make you fill out online forms with a deadline and punish you if you don't. But some of you will know tax collectors in those days were, were a different kettle of fish. A bit of a history lesson for you. Um, at this point in world history, the Romans were in charge of the, the promised land the land that God had promised his people. But as well as that, they had an enormous territory outside of that to rule. In fact, it was still growing. It would be about 85 years' time when it reached its max. And at its max, it would have gone all the way up to, to northern England, not quite to Scotland, um, down to North Africa, and then, I get the right way around, east, east that way for you, um, through Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, and almost as far as India that way, and then up, including the, the, um, the Black Sea, the North Sea. Sorry, the North Sea. And if you're Rome and you're enormous, how do you control your kingdom? How do you enforce law and order? Well, you have a massive army. You build it, you train it, you equip it, you pay for it. How do you pay for it? Ah, you collect taxes. And if they don't pay their taxes, then you have ways of making people pay. And so you have tax collectors. They were people who grew um, rich legally because they were paid for by the Romans. And so they were hated as traitors with the Romans. 
And yet more than likely they would grow rich illegally as well because they were often dishonest and they would overcharge. Which means that Levi and his mates, verse 15, the people Jesus is sat eating with would be hated. And he was partying with them. Does does he not know who they were? Sinners kind of umbrella, general, derogatory term for people who had no concern for the Jewish law. The kind of people you kept away from, the kind of people you looked down upon, the people who made you feel good by comparison. Yet Jesus said it is for, it is for them, for those people that he came. Did you catch that? It is for those people whom he came for. There will be opportunity in home groups to think about that and what that means for us as a church. Indeed, whether people around us who might fall into those broad categories would think that. How can we better reach people? But Jesus is very clear, verse 17, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He doesn't mean that some are okay, some are are righteous. He's being ironic. He's saying, I haven't come for people who think they're sorted. Do you know, I've come for people who, who know that they're not. I've come for people who realise they've offended God. I've come for people who are helpless and who are heading for judgement. Those are the kind of people I can help, says Jesus. It's a bit like those of us who have an aversion to doctors. That's people in this room who just aren't a real fan of GPs. I'm married to one, but I still have an aversion to doctors. I don't like going to the doctors. Of course, if I don't go to the doctors, they can't help me. If I'm sat at home watching TV, then they can't help me. Because I'm not acknowledging that I need their help. I'm not acknowledging that I'm sick or I'm ill. But Jesus says he's come for people who realise they need him. Now, of course, we're all sick, actually. None of us are righteous. We all need Jesus. Some of us, some of us seem quite nice and decent and good and we tick the boxes and we keep the rules. The eyes of society, the eyes of our friends, indeed, in our own eyes. Or you can be sick and be quite nasty or bad or one of the lowest of the low. But the point is, in God's eyes, it is the same offence. We're sick and we need the doctor. Our, our relative goodness or our badness or where we place ourselves on the ladder, the scale, is basically irrelevant. God is offended as we ignore him nicely or as we ignore him nastily. But the point is, we've all ignored him. And however you've done that this, this week, this day, whatever your past record, whatever your... Um, secrets, whatever the skeletons, however you have sought to be in charge of your own life, know for sure that Jesus has come for people like you and people like me. People like us. Even if you are a traitor, scumbucket, tax collector like Levi, Jesus says to us, come and follow me. And again, the opposition grows a bit more. Third question, isn't the Christian faith just about sucking the joy out of life? Verse 18 to 22. 
I wonder if for many of us we have that sneaking suspicion in the back of our minds. Because increasingly in our time, life is seen as being about making, having the freedom to make the choices to do the things that we want to do when we want to do them. You be you, we say. And they are kind of sacred modern values and we, we challenge them at our peril. If I try and curtail your freedom, or at least freedom as you think it is, then we struggle with that, don't we? We want to be us, to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And it's often thought that the Bible is just a bunch of rules written by a bunch of prudes who want to squish the life out of life. It's kind of a power play to put it in our place. It's interesting, this next little altercation with Jesus, verse 18 down to 22, this time with some unknown questioners, you get even more of who Jesus is and what kind of king he is as well. The last story was about feasting with Levi and his crew. Now we're talking about fasting. And as far as we can tell, these were not fasts that were commanded in the Bible, but rather these were fasts that were organised by particular religious groups of the time. So you can see the disciples of John the Baptist. We met him back in chapter 1 the disciples of the Pharisees as well. And the problem is, Jesus, why are your followers not taking these fasts seriously? Come on, we are devoted. Why aren't your disciples as keen as us? And you see his answer, it's extraordinary. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. He says, the bridegroom is here. It is wedding time. It's celebration time. It's not solemnity. The coming of God's king, the coming of the kingdom, time of joy, excitement, blessing, rejoicing. That is what the kingdom of God is like, says Jesus. And my disciples are living in the light of that for a time. And yet that's hard for those who might have an established view of how things ought to be, of of expectations perhaps. Jesus likens it, verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In a sense, Jesus is doing something very different, new, unexpected, at odds with what has gone before, in some senses. And so what he's doing is going to take some adjusting and getting used to I take it that was true then, and that's true now as well. There's something in our hearts which are full of pride that wants to earn favour with God, that wants to rebuild that relationship by ourselves. And so with this man-centred religion, it's about what we can do for God. And with that come rules and anxiety and performance and never quite sure if we've done enough, and yet with Jesus comes grace and rejoicing. He doesn't come and suck the life out of life. He comes and gives us life. He gives us the freedom to be the people we were made to be. To love him, to serve him, to enjoy him. To enjoy the gifts that the God we were made for has given us. His kingdom is a kingdom of joy. And, and the problem is, if we think we're in control by what we can do and doing what I want when I want to do it, pretty soon those appetites take over and they are the things that drive us. 
You see, the kingdom of God is about rejoicing because we are freed to be the people that we were made to be. And when we listen to the other voices, whether it's, I don't know, drugs, alcohol, technology, grades, looks, friendships, sex, whatever it might be, when we, when we run after those things, very quickly they become the masters of our lives. We become the slaves and they eat us alive. But Jesus comes with rejoicing. Final question we're going to have to zoom in on is this idea of keeping the rules. 2 verse 23 through to the end of this section. Look, if you go to 3 verse 7 you see he withdraws from the public and he's just with his disciples. This is the last little bit of public ministry for a while before he heads in and focus on the disciples. But there are two objections that come Jesus' way to do with the Sabbath in these two little cameos. The first one is there in verse 23 to 24. At one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? The second, on another occasion, verse 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Now, we need to be clear here, the Sabbath was certainly a thing, a, a thing from God, and it was something that set the people of God aside from everyone else, something God had instituted. He said, press pause, press pause and remember the goodness of creation and remember the goodness of my rescue of you from Egypt. So it's creation and recreation in one sense. Yet it seems that what had the problem, the misunderstanding at the heart of their looking at the Sabbath the religious practice was actually a question of not, not stopping, but rather what constituted work. And you see, a huge tradition had grown up. It had grown out of laws upon laws upon laws being drawn up. And there were books of the time written with different types of activity that you couldn't do because it was counted as work. Apparently there were 39 types of activity of things you could not do on the Sabbath, and that included reaping among, among them. Although you could reap in very specific situations. And so it all got very complicated as to what constituted not working on the Sabbath. They worked very hard at their definitions and got into a muddle and added laws upon laws upon laws. And those laws became burdens. Which means as he and his disciples joyfully eat grain, verse 23 to 28, that, that winds the Pharisees up. Because they think he's misunderstanding what work is. Which means as he heals and does good and brings life to this man, 3 verse 1 to 6, again, that, that winds them up even further. They've got so caught up in the wood, they've got distorted and lost sight of the trees. And so lost sight of who Jesus is. Again, we see something maybe of the authority to teach that we saw in the, um, the first week. But I just want to make one point on the way past with this. I think we can so easily be like the Pharisees where we take good things and we add laws upon laws upon laws, perhaps with good intentions, but we end up adding to the Scriptures and people end up being burdened. 
We want folk to be holy and faithful and set apart. And so we make these rules, maybe even things good on paper, but they end up being weights around people's necks. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And we finish the verse by saying, and we can add some more where that came from. But it's striking, isn't it? The problem here seems to be a misunderstanding of a good thing from the Lord. And the opposition increases. Jesus is causing problems for the religious leaders. He's he's angry with them, and yet their response in verse 5 and 6 is shocking. He, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, the Herodians, as their name suggests, were supporters of He was one of the meanest kings who ruled Israel. He represented the Romans. And so with the Romans would come their Greek values, pagan, immoral, anti-God, pro-self, which then makes them incredibly strange bedfellows to be with the Pharisees. Pharisees, emphasis on teaching, Hebrew scriptures, laws, barriers put up around themselves, the, something being contaminated by the Romans. The Herodians were in one sense the progressive, moving with the times. The Pharisees were the traditional values, trying to stem the tide of so-called pagan progress. But both sides are united in their hatred of Jesus. They want him out of the picture and out of the way. But for both of them, he is a threat. For both of them, he must be got rid of. And we don't have Herodians or Pharisees in those terms today. But you see the application as we finish. that The Gospel of Jesus is an offence to religion and to irreligion. To Pharisees and to Herodians. Why is that? Because both sets seek to control us. One set through external rules and good behaviour and ticking the boxes and one through internal rules and being your own moral authority. But both of them are hostile to the message of Jesus or in fact both of them are challenged by the gospel of grace. And in this room we will flip-flop either way. Some of us will be more like the Pharisees and we will be good at external rules and law-keeping and doing good and ticking boxes, and some of us will be more like Herodians, with internal laws, and following our hearts, and living for self and for pleasure. And it may even depend on what day of the week it is, which way we flip-flop. But the reality is, we all need the Gospel. We all need the Gospel of grace. Jesus challenges both of those. Indeed, we all need the death of Jesus in our place, which is ironically where 3 verse 6 will end up. Jesus is not unaware of the death to, his death to come. We've seen that already on the way past. Did you spot it in 2 verse 20? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Even in chapter 2, he's looking ahead to the cross in chapter 15. Then they will fast, then they will mourn. 
but whether we are Herodians or whether we are Pharisees, his death in our place is the answer that we need. His gospel of grace is the news we need to hear. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll respond. Father in heaven, so much in this passage that we could dig down into. And so we pray for each of us and for us as a church that you would just give us something to chew on this week. Perhaps a challenge, perhaps an encouragement, perhaps something that we needed to hear this morning. We pray for those of us who might have these questions on the screen, whether they are expressed externally or even just we keep them in our hearts. Convince us afresh, please, of our need of Jesus, of his sufficiency. And whether we are Pharisees or Herodians by nature, or both, might we have ears to hear the good news of Jesus, the gospel of grace. In his name we pray. Amen.